welcome to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire podcast. We are your host. I am Hunter Johnson. And I'm Thomas Baldridge. Hello and welcome to Sawdust and Fire. And today we are joined with a special guest that I have learned a lot from over the last few years, as most of you probably have. He is with University of Florida's Deer Lab, as well as host of Fire University podcast, Dr. Disturbance himself, Dr. Marcus Lashley. Hello, Doc. How are you? I'm doing great. How are y'all? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We've uh, uh, been looking forward to this for a while. We yeah. uh, wasn't kidding when I say we've learned a lot from you, and I think there's a lot still yet to learn. Yeah, well, I, I certainly hope so. I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I learn a lot from you guys as well. Uh, I uh, see the content online and and I get uh, sent stuff from the field from landowners and practitioners all the time. And so I'm always learning too. I understand. We hear that you've got a new online training course, uh, fire training course uh, going on. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, that, that stemmed from several things one is uh a lot of folks reach out to me seeing the the content that we put out uh you know through podcasts or social media or whatever and they ask for opportunities to get training and uh, of course uh, you have wherever you're at a, a state agency will uh foster a training that you can get a certified prescribed burn manager certificate uh and that's that's great and needed uh, if you're going to be using fire. But this was kind of uh, we were trying to build something that would be accessible to people uh, either as a refresher or maybe it's a precursor to the state agency uh, training. In other words, you're, you're not get, becoming a prescribed burn manager by taking it. But we were trying to, to cover a whole bunch of topics that I get asked about all the time. And there, there are several other scientists uh, from across the Southeast that helped put that on. So uh, I don't want to take all the credit for it, but uh, we, we tried to get experts in, you know, smoke management, uh, prescribed firing techniques. There's modules on wildlife management and forest management with fire, uh, how, to, how to get involved in the community and, and build things like prescribed burn associations to help facilitate uh, folks burning. So we tried to, to collect a whole bunch of, things like that and put it all in one place and, and uh, you know, make it freely available to everybody so you can take it on your own time online. That is sweet. So, so how does a, how does a person go about doing it? What, what's the steps they have to do to get to it? How long of a course is it? And that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, if you're interested in that, you can go, if you're on Instagram, you can go to a doctor disturbance or UF deer lab. We have the link available in our, our uh, stuff there. I think we have it on all, probably uh, Facebook and, and uh, Twitter as well. We have it in the show notes of a couple of episodes of our podcast. Uh, so there, you know, there's links available. You can probably search for it now. I'm guessing and it'll pop up online. Okay. So, or they can just email me. And that, I'll, I'll be happy to provide the link. But essentially, it's a, an online training. You could go to the link and enroll, and uh, you can take it whenever you get ready thereafter. 
That's pretty sweet. I know it was pretty popular on Facebook last night. It got shared quite a bit. I saw it on uh, turkey hunters uh, reversing the decline and hunters breaking the ceiling and southern habitat managers and native habitat managers. And yeah, yeah. It, it got shared quite a bit. So I was sure yeah, glad to see that. Um, yeah, that's what we wanted. You know, why are we doing any of this if we're not getting it out to folks? So I, right. I always appreciate all the help with everybody uh, helping share our resources like that. But I, I was, you know, I just really wanted to give people a resource, you know, that they can they can take. I know people are busy. You know, uh, you may not want to spend money on something like that. So we just wanted to make it available to everybody. Awesome. Uh, well, that that reminds me of something else that I didn't have in my notes to ask you. Um, I know there was a uh, we were all signing and passing around the deal for your administration to try to keep your uh, uh, fire university podcast up and going. And we don't want to just keep it going. We want to make it bigger. We want yeah. more content. Uh, where are we at with that these days? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of an interesting process. Uh, I don't want to bore you with the details, but essentially, you, you probably heard of tenure. Yes. And, uh, most folks have some idea of what that means, but until you're inside, it doesn't really mean that much to most people. It didn't to me it's until I got involved in it. But uh, essentially, all of the things that I've been doing up till now I had to put together in a packet and show the administration that these are worthwhile things, not only to keep those going, but also to keep me around. So I'm kind of justifying that they need to keep me at the university. So, uh, yeah, that was another thing. I got great feedback. I think uh, last time I looked, we had 1,200 and something people had filled that thing out. It's a less than a minute survey. And uh, I was honestly completely blown away by the is a low number we we got to get that 1200 number up that's that's uh well, yeah. so what do we need to do we need to be a bribing administration we need to be taking people to dinner buying gifts what how do, what, what do we need to do here to to convince them so, no i think uh just taking <laughs> that survey you know taking a, a half a minute out of your time to fill out that survey it was basically okay we've been putting out a lot of content we know that some people are using it because they're, you know, we're seeing you share it and commenting on it. And I get questions all the time, but we're trying to say, okay, well, how much are you applying on the landscape? And that's really what the important metric was is how many acres are people actually applying knowledge that we're putting out on, on uh, these different platforms. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was pretty blown away by the response to be honest with you i mean having that many people fill out a survey is kind of unheard of i, I haven't seen another one at least in an extent in the extension network that has gotten that many participants and the acreage is is uh really impressive as well i think i think we made a pretty good run at it for the administration that we don't need to just keep it keep me around and keep this going but we do need to expand it because it seems to be having an impact and people value it so that's the whole it, point it is it's great stuff great great stuff we can't we can't do without you or without it we gotta have it we want more <laughs> well i certainly appreciate that <laughs> well so we want to talk to you about a podcast that you've done here with bronson strickland title of the podcast it was a couple weeks ago Fire as a tool to increase nutrient availability for fawns and lactating does. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, to take a uh, a line from you, I guess the burning question here okay. is: uh, you you made a comment in there that you don't know what's going to be happening in Florida in June, but you know it's going to be hot. So it's June in Florida. Is it hot? Oh my gosh! <laughs> I think I may have even said June twenty first, which is today. <laughs> I don't remember what date I said, but it was pretty close to this date. Uh, yeah, it's pretty hot. <laughs> it's hot in Arkansas. I know that. Yeah. Well, I got a few things I need to take care of around the yard, and uh, it's too hot to do that during the middle of the day. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Too hot to mow. Yep. Too hot to to be raking and yeah. They... Yeah. I have some some trees I and shrubs and stuff I was getting rid of. So, you know, chainsawing about two or three at a time. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get it done sometime in the next four or five years. At that there rate. you go. That's that's what I tell my wife. I'm going to do it. You don't have to keep asking every six months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Oh, so, um, Thomas, you got anything to add before we get started here? No, man. Just thank, you know, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we definitely want to get into some of that stuff that, that you discussed. And, and you know, I got to tell you, you know, thanks uh, so much for all the stuff that you put out because Hunter and myself both, along with many friends, you know, are implementing that on the landscape and, and we're seeing positive changes. Yeah. And that's really encouraging. Yeah. No, I, that's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm really value. And I think everybody should, should realize that, you know, we need, a, we need people in every part of the the wheel, right? You have to have all the cogs in the wheel. And I, I unfortunately get removed from a lot of the things in the field because of the nature of my job, but it's equally important to have folks out there that are taking in the information and applying it on the landscape. And I, I'm just like you, I, you know, people have started tagging me in videos where they're, you know, implementing some of these practices or, you know, these emails where I'm, I hear them, you know, hey, I started burning three years ago because of stuff I heard from you. And now I have quail. I've never had quail before, you know, th- things like that. And it really, you know, it's it's, it's a really valuable, you know, it's, it's uh, important to have all of us. Yeah. And I'll tell you something else that's pretty cool. Hunter and I have a, a friend at, at Arkansas Game and Fish, and he lives kind of in north central Arkansas. He's he's uh, one of the private lands biologist coordinators. And uh, he I think he told me he's got about seven acres. And he thinned some of that timber and mm-hmm. burned it about a year ago. And he had a, a hen turkey come and nest there and then you know we're talking about just seven acres yeah and uh he burned it again this year and he's he shared with me some forbs that he's got growing oh, and he heard, yeah it's crazy and he heard a, a quail whistle uh, and this is kind of a uh you know a large track subdivision style area and mm-hmm. he was talking to an older man that lived in the neighborhood that's been there for decades mm-hmm. and he he told him he said man i i thought there, the quail were all gone and what's what's so encouraging to me is when you, when you can make an impact on a small scale, you know, sometimes guys say, well, I just got 40 acres. What am I really going to do? Well, he he's already made a positive impact on seven acres. So get your get your drip torch and uh, 
you know, go, go to work. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's been a pretty common theme for me as well. That, you know, a lot of folks feel like they can't make an impact because they don't own enough land or maybe they don't own land at all. And, uh, you know, I think it's important the point you're just making is you can still, you know, if we all get together, even if you're a public landowner, you know, uh, you still have influence over what, what's going on on management areas and being knowledgeable about the kinds of things that you'd like to see is just as important, you know, as, uh, as owning 10,000 acres and being able to do whatever you want. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Well, so we'll move on to some of the questions we had about that podcast. Some of the things that we wanted to touch up on mm -hmm. is, um, and you correct us anywhere you think that we're wrong or not exactly right, because we don't want to be right. We want to provide great content and okay. we want to provide factual information. So we could care less about being right, right or wrong, and you're yeah. not going to hurt our feelings. But we, um, you know, you were talking about deer quite a bit uh in that mm -hmm. podcast and uh so i've i've jotted down here four factors for creating big bucks and a healthy herd and mm -hmm. i wanted to kind of go over some of them the first one is is age structure and we all know what that is that's pretty self-explanatory you know we can't shoot deer that have reached their full potential if we're shooting them at two and a half and three and a half and yeah. you know that that always you know a lot of people see a a 140 or 150 inch buck that's two and a half years old 10 point or whatever and they're shooting it um and you know that boon that that deer destined was destined to be Boone and crockett um, yeah if nothing happened to it and we could get it up to five and a half six and a half years old so that one's pretty self-explanatory well we could touch on that a little bit though just to you know get people thinking about it let's do that uh, you know, the, the age of a buck is by far the most important thing. Yes, sir. You, you can provide it as high quality a diet as, as it can eat. And, uh, you're the majority of deer in a wild herd are not ever going to achieve 150 inches. And they're definitely not going to uh, two years old or three years old. And one thing is consistent, even for those like you just said, that that have that potential. It, you know, they may get up to 140 as a two, but man, the the ceiling on that deer to, you know, at six or seven years old is you know, we don't even know where it's at. It's not even predictable when they're that far in the distribution as an outlier and in quality. The problem that it's a I mean it's just a you know a, a part of the way that we hunt and the nature of, of the the mistakes that are made Th those deer are always the mistake yeah even if you're trying to do if you even if you're trying to get deer six years old the one that you kill at three is a mistake because it you know is so impressive at that age and that was the one you were trying to get Right. And that may be only two of a hundred male fawns right. of corn. We're talking right. about the extreme right tail, right? So you think of now let's cut that up and say, okay, in a deer herd that we have, you know, let's just say 50 deer per square mile for ease, ease of numbers. And then the average landowner is 
a quarter of that, you know, 100 acres or 150 acres, you know, it doesn't take very many mistakes from, you know, like one mistake for every landowner and all of a sudden none of those make it to mature age classes. That's right. That's right. So, so you end up, and uh, Bronson talks about this a lot, uh, the glass ceiling where you end up in this situation where you feel like you can't grow those big ones. And it's actually just a symptom of, no, the ones that have that potential never, ever get old. Right. Because they're always the one that gets killed young. And there's only a couple born every year that have that kind of potential. That's right. We, we, we have a... Uh... We have about 5,000 acres that I manage. And we also, in addition to that, have a lease that's about 10,000. Mm-hmm. And we allow a lot of people to come and, and hunt. And that's one of the big things. You know, when our DMAP biologist at the end of the year says, well, y'all killed three Boone and Crockett bucks this year. Mm-hmm. Well, no, we didn't. Yeah, you did. You just shot them a couple years too early. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's pretty disheartening. And yeah. You know, even if you have a, you know, we had a uh, 181 inch deer killed and a 166 inch deer killed last year that were both three and a half year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, what could they have been in a couple more years? You know, we, we don't know. Um, yeah. Well, even when we, you know, we have a lot of data on this and when they get start getting that extreme, we can't even, you know, with all this data, we can't even predict it because it's so variable. I mean, some of them will be 200 plus and, the, you know, other ones, maybe they're going to plane off at 170, but we know they're going to be big. <laughs> they're going to be worse. You can't kill a 200 inch deer if you shoot him at 180. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I don't know anybody that would pass up a 180. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I'm with you there. Yeah. You know, that another thing is, I don't mean it to be controversial. It's just a reality, but it doesn't matter if that three-year-old is killed as the first deer for a kid or, you know, a, a age seasoned veteran, like you, you know, just think about that. There aren't that many of those. That's right. And uh, it doesn't matter who kills it at three, it still didn't make it to six. And if that's what your goal is, you need to be thinking about that. Right. That's right. We want people to be happy. We want, we want, to encourage uh, everyone to get experienced, be experienced hunters. We, we pretty much let a kid shoot anything that makes them happy, but yeah, a lot easier to lose a two and a half year old eight pointer as it is a two and a half year old 10 or 12 pointer. Uh, yeah, uh, I can understand. Well, you know, that's a, I have that same goal often. I'm trying to get people into hunting and I have a lot less emphasis on, you know, trying to produce trophy animals, but you still need to be thinking about that. What is your actual goal and what, what do you value the most? And, uh, you know, that, that's just a part of the decision making. And it makes it a lot harder when you, when you have seven acres, because then you're, you're, what you're doing is influenced by the decisions of, and, and objectives of a lot of other people. That's right. So Absolutely. That's where getting together and getting on the same page with your neighbors could be really important. Even if you have a few hundred acres, that's still critical. I know Thomas and I both are working hard trying to, to get our neighbors on board with uh, a lot of this habitat work and, and managing for a turkey and quail and deer. It just, just going to make our property that much better if we can get yep. them to do something similar. So yep, you're right. And, of course, here in Arkansas, you don't have to do much to have the best property in the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Habitat work is something that that doesn't happen a lot here. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think that is an unfortunate reality across a lot of the landscape. Yeah, I, I, I would have to I would have to agree with that. I, that uh, a lot of people think if you got a picture of a buck on the bag and you're dumping it out somewhere or, or slanging it and covering it up, that that's the uh, and and I was that guy for a lot of years. And uh, but uh, that brings me to my next uh, number two is nutrition. Um, what do deer eat? What makes up the biggest part of a deer's diet? And uh, I think. Uh, this is right up your alley because I think uh, we create a lot of this with fire. Oh yeah. Well, there, there's a couple ways to, to look at this. One, the deer is eating plants and it's eating the ones it can reach. Right. So if it can't reach it, it's not eating it. That's right. <laughs> I think uh, that, you know, if you really, that seems simple, but a lot of people have that trouble where you have a closed canopy forest and all the vegetation that's catching light, all the energy from sun, the sun is going into making more tree. And uh, that's, that's not very useful for a deer that can't reach it. So, you know, that, uh, so that's one way to, to look at it. Another one is these, these uh, different habitat management practices that we talk about all the time. We're trying to influence the availability of forbs often because they're usually limited and right. that so a broadleaf herbaceous plant they typically are very high in quality and they will make up a high proportion of the diet if they are available and uh you know that could be ragweed or or uh, pokeweed or all kinds of things uh i just did a a whole bunch of uh, stuff on Instagram, trying to run through as many of them as I could find for people, just so you'd know what they were. But deer are eating all kinds of forbs, but that usually doesn't dominate their diet. Uh, it's usually dominated by browse. And uh, can, can there's- you touch on the difference between um, foraging for forbs and and uh, a deer that's eating browse? Yeah, so browse would just be trees and shrubs. So we're talking about woody plants. Uh, and that, that will very often be the largest proportion of their diet at any given time on any given place. And there's two, probably two big reasons for that. One, it's kind of like the, you know, it, it's the base, right? It, it's usually dominating the forage availability. And then on top of that, in most of the places where we've done diet studies, forbs are not very prevalent on the landscape. So when you couple those two things, uh, you can see it dramatically, even you know, during lactation and antler growth, you could see it dramatically uh, dominated by woody plants. So these tree species, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So if you're in an active burning program or, or uh, you're doing some of these practices we've talked about where the trees are re-sprouting, those can be extremely high quality. And in fact, they can be on the same level of, of a lot of these forbs. And uh, in some cases they aren't as well defended uh, as the forbs are. So, you know, they could even provide additional benefit in some cases, but uh, those two categories, broadly plants are, you know, woody and herbaceous are going to dominate their diet pretty much all the, always. If uh, one thing that I see really commonly, it, you know, and I, 
I had the same viewpoint because I grew up with cattle and uh, I kind of conflate what cows eat with what deer eat. And I think a lot of people do that and we think they're eating grass. And the reality is with, with the exception of kind of late winter, early spring, usually grass is a very small proportion of their diet. And uh, when it is a part of their diet is annual grasses. And that doesn't mean that there aren't a couple that they really like, like our cereal grains, for instance, wheat and oats and things you plant, those are grasses, but they nutritional, their nutritional profile is much more similar to a forb than, than a grass in that context. So uh, that typically is a pretty low proportion of their diet. Mast uh, can be a really high proportion for a very narrow amount of time during the fall. But even in those studies, uh, that's usually in a context where there's not much else to eat. Right. They're, they're dominated by mast when there isn't any browse to eat, in other words. So I've heard different numbers, and I, and I guess it varies by how much you've got available. If you don't have any browse and you don't have any forbs uh, you uh, and you're not producing a lot of mast, obviously they're not going to eat much. But I, I've heard... Uh, 55 percent i've heard 75 percent of a deer's diet um in in a typical across the midwest and southeast uh typical landscape how much of their diet do you think comes from natural growing vegetation and browse um when when you're actively managing and it's a we'll just say like you're you're getting the peak amount of, of uh, native plants available, the peak nutritional availability, uh, it will dominate their diet. Okay. So, so it'll be over 50% for sure. Uh, in in uh, scenarios where you have agriculture involved, that can make up a big proportion of it, even when there's native stuff, that, especially like soybeans. And I think one thing that people don't understand about that is not only are those plants really high quality like soybeans, but we've also bred them for, for specific traits that are valuable to us. And in doing so, they lose some of the traits that might help defend themselves. Uh, so, you know, they, they're probably more digestible because they're more poorly defended. Uh, so you may even see a high preference for something like soybean over your native forbs. But even when they have all the soybeans they can, eat if you have a lot of native plants available it will be a large proportion of their diet they they must mix a diversity of plants into their diet to meet all their demands now we're not talking about a quarter acre soybean plot in the middle of a closed canopy hardwoods we're not talking about five percent of the landscape and and food plots for deer we're talking about big ag country yeah we're talking about where 50 percent of the landscape is soybeans kind of kind of a scale but even, even there, normally in that circumstance, there, there's not really, you know, all of the early successional opportunity is in agriculture. So we don't really have a good handle on what would happen. Okay, if you, if you had 50% of the landscape with soybeans and then the other 50 was the most diverse native plant community of forbs and great stuff to eat ever, uh, I don't, I don't really know what would happen, to be honest with you. I, I know that they would have a large proportion of their diet in both, but I don't know what the how that would shake out in terms of the averages. So that's one of the things that, that we've discussed a little bit around here. Um, 
this is big ag country, um, huge farming community, lots of soybeans. Uh, and then of course we got a lot of rice here and corn. Um, but, but big, sometimes two or 300 acre soybean fields. And then they've got these little blocks of wood surrounding them. How much could we possibly be limiting our deer, uh, potential by not doing anything in the timber you know we're in june and, and these farmers are just now planting soybeans uh we've been so wet around here but you know we've got a lot of big deer and everybody says well you know we've got big deer so hmm. you know we don't need to do it we got plenty of soybeans but you know basically from from the time that the soybeans were harvested through the rut mm -hmm. bucks recovering from the rut um starting to put on antler growth um uh, those trying to uh, uh, carry fetuses to term and and building milk for lactation. Now we've got fawns hitting the ground, and we're just now getting soybeans planted here in June. Um, how much are we limiting the potential on those deer by not doing stuff in the woods and everything being closed canopy and not having a good herbaceous understory? Yeah, that that's a really good. Uh, line of, of thought. Uh, one, one thing that, that is really important is, you know, there, there are more than, there's more than just food to, you know, being successful as a deer manager. And uh, we forget that, especially in that situation, because food, you're right, is probably not limiting for the majority of the year. Right. Uh, however, cover it really commonly is and cover could be important for a variety of things it could uh be important for avoiding predation it could be important for thermal refuge and uh it, you know it's undervalued and people out in the midwest uh that have the only cover in the county like they have all the deer during during that time you know that that covers a that pinch point so uh you know they know that really well but those force management practices can go a lot a long way not necessarily with the uh not necessarily to produce a lot of great food in that context the cover is probably the more important factor that you're getting from it especially uh for a fawn that you know cover is critical for right for the first several weeks of life. And I, you know, the, the other aspect of that is that the food can still be valuable, even in that context, because I, I sometimes I'll say it this way and, and it gets people thinking about it, but you know, we, we all have the capability probably, you probably have a favorite meal. Oh yeah. But, uh, and you probably have the capability where you could eat that meal for every single meal but right, I bet right. you don't. Right. And I, you know, they're, they're the same way. They're having to mix a, a fairly complex diet. And if they don't have the diversity of plants available to do that, they're not going to maximize productivity. There's been a whole bunch of great work in a bunch of uh, agricultural species showing that very thing. And uh, the, the work has not, we're not there yet with deer, but 
uh, we know that they conform to the same kinds of principles in terms of diet selection. Even when they have all the soybeans they can eat, they're still going to mix in a whole bunch of native stuff. And, you know, we, we don't really know how valuable that is from a diet standpoint. But, uh, you know, I, I would think about the limiting factor probably being linked to cover, and then you're probably going to gain a lot of benefits from that diversity, just allowing the animals to choose. Okay. Well, you kind of led me into my number three for the in the four factors of uh, creating big bucks and a healthy herd, and that is reduced stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know in your podcast with Dr. Strickland, stress can come in many forms from nutrition to stress from the rut. And one of the big ones that you talked about there was, uh, was the weather, the heat and mm-hmm. the cold. Um, can we touch on that stress a little bit and how sure. stress can affect uh, a deer herd, uh, whether it's a buck growing antlers or lactating doe, uh, uh, nursing her fawns. And, um, and I never realized how big of an issue heat can be mm-hmm. until I listened to your podcast the other day. Yeah. No, I think this is something that that we we know a, a fair amount about with a bunch of species, but it hasn't been focused on that much with deer in terms of research. Uh, but stress can absolutely be an important factor. And when I was talking to, to Bronson about it, we kind of talked about it on two timescales. If you remember, uh, one of them he's much more well-versed with. But, you know, the, the animals are experiencing direct stress from, let's say, from temperature. And, the, you know, that can cause things like heat stress in the fawn so that it's, you know, weaker or, uh, I mean, it could just flat out kill it. Or it could stress the mother. And uh, at least from if we borrow some research from, from the cattle industry, that heat stress really affects milk production. So, you know, that, that could not only does the phone have to deal with the direct stress, it also may be indirect because mom is stressed. And where this habitat could come in is it gives, provides a buffer from that, but it could also allow her to spend more time with the phone or closer proximity to the phone. So there are all sorts of ways just with, you know, we're just taking one aspect of it, but it's already getting kind of complex how that habitat could, you know, could be really important for that. And if you're in, you know, uh, big ag, those agricultural fields are not producing that kind of thermal refuge. So it may be really good food, uh, but it's not producing those others. And neither is, you know, some of these other practices that we use commonly. Uh, you know, it's not just about food. So the other thing that Bronson and I kind of started going down uh, is thinking about the the genetic consequences to individuals and that's where it gets really weird because we we all have this ability where we have genes that are active or inactive and uh you know we're we're not sure how much we know that food stress uh can cause animals to turn on and off but we don't know about these other stresses there's no reason it shouldn't work the same way with with all of them uh where basically if the mother is experiencing stress that could be passed on and it, even the grandmother would be influencing the potential of an animal, you know, right now. So 
that that's pretty crazy to think about that you may literally be affecting two two generations down the road uh what the quality of animals are and what their potential is based on you know what the the mother is experiencing now and that's that's really wild to me to think about and that's about as in-depth as i can get into it because that's not my my area of expertise but uh habitat is pretty important because you want to reduce those kinds of stressors that might i mean you know one of those genes might be linked to antler quality right right so what you know you certainly don't want to turn off the gene for antler quality and then you're suppressing uh potentially suppressing the potential of a herd because of stress that could be avoided with some of these actions um we talk to people about this quite a bit and people say, well, my, my deer aren't stressed. They don't seem nervous. They seem calm and, mm-hmm. and nutrition's good. They're not skinny. You know, uh, I, I look at them and, but that's not what we're talking about here. Is it? No, no, you, you wouldn't necessarily see that at all. I mean, it's re- just think about, uh, I mean, we're, we're all hunters probably listening to this. Uh, you know, deer look pretty calm and, relaxed and and uh we're out there trying to kill them (laughs) so you know they're not necessarily going to wear their emotions on their sleeve in other words right Uh, so i think a lot of these things go hidden and and honestly we're even from a research standpoint they've been hidden from us and we're just realizing more and more the closer we start looking at things how how much more complex they are than we think that that's one of the reasons that i'm such a big advocate of, of a complete habitat management program is because we, we know that it's really complex and we can get into the details of how complex they are. But if we're providing really high quality habitat in a, an arrangement and a, you know, an appropriate level that they can choose what they need whenever they need it, we know that we're reducing stress and we're addressing all of, all of these issues, nutrition, predation risk, stress, you know, all of those things at once. And there's not anything else you can do that, that is addressing all of them at the same time. That's right. That's right. And that brings me, you kind of led me into number four here. Uh, on I didn't, four I didn't even know what they were. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Genetics. And I think there is a fine line between people confusing genetics with deer adapting to the environment that they have available. I hear a lot of people say, well, we just don't have the genetics up here in the hills to grow big deer like it. But that's there's good genetics and bad genetics in every deer herd. And it doesn't really have anything to do with genetics, does it? It's it's more um, they're adapting to the environment that's available. And it goes back to what you were saying about providing everything that they need. Mm -hmm. And, And that gets into that what's the big word epigenetics um yeah that's what i was just talking about with the stress and where you're supplying down the road two or three generations down the road what you're doing now um is having an impact on that um well there's there's a few things about that one if you if you completely turn the ship right now don't expect it to all be done and fixed right you know this season right it's going to take a while because you have to let let things go but uh, yeah in terms of genetics this this is probably 
the most misused part of what we know about deer for deer management, I would say. And uh, the, the part of that is because we're misinterpreting what we see on the landscape. And that's kind of, you know, when I was talking earlier about, you know, which individuals to shoot. Well, we, you're, you're exactly right. We know that the genetic potential of fawns when they're born, that fits that bell-shaped curve. There's a whole bunch of them on average, right? They're in the middle. And then there are a whole bunch that are poorer than usual. And then there's a whole bunch that are, that are better than usual. And the ones that are extreme, they're just a little bitty piece of the tail, only a couple of percent on each side. So you may have some bucks wherever you're at. And I do mean wherever you're at in the range of whitetails. You'll have a few bucks. They're, they're never going to get above 60 or 70 inches an hour. Right. You know, there may be two, two of them born out of every hundred that fit that where they're just, they're never going to do any better than that. You can let them get as old as they want to be, yep. feed them as well as you can. And they're just not genetically not capable of doing better. Right. And then we had the other opposite end, which were those really extreme ones, which is what everybody wants to see on the landscape everywhere. Right. The reality is maybe two out of a hundred have the capability of being 180 or 190 plus. They're born every year, but the likelihood that they actually express that and get to a mature, you know, mature animal is just so low because they're always the mistake. Now, when we go back to what we're actually seeing on the landscape and people are, people interpret, oh, we never, ever, ever see a mature buck that scores more than 128. So therefore we can't produce a buck that's bigger than 128. That's the, I mean, it's a reasonable leap to make just at face value. And that's what people do. And, uh, you know, that they just make, make the, that statement exactly what you said that we just don't have the genetics, right? We're not going, our mature bucks are never, they never score more than 128. We can't genetically produce that. And the reality is, most of the time that's in a place where there's very heavy scrutiny on, on bucks. And I, I mean, they're getting killed and then there's a lot of competition for those bucks. And the average age of bucks killed is often two and a half or three and a half on the landscape. And, you know, just think about what you would do if you're in a tree stand overlooking your favorite honey hole and two nice bucks come out and one of them scores eight inches more than the other one they're the same age almost everybody would shoot the one with more the higher score that's right even though they're both three we would selectively and i'm just talking about we just hunters in general that's we right. selectively shoot the bigger one right we do the same thing with a doe you shoot the bigger doe instead of the smaller one that's right uh, we don't even know we, we won't get into that that thing unless you really want to but we might be here a little longer than you want to be uh, but yeah so that just scale that up to now we have potentially thousands of hunters in a single county who are all making that decision and you know basically what happens is all of the deer who have the potential to get up in the 140s, 60s, 80s, whatever you want, you know, all of those deer essentially are the one or that other one that scored eight inches more. That's right. 
so they all like you know if we're if our average age class is three and a half and you're shooting all of the right side of the distribution essentially what you have is the mature bucks are all from the left side or center of the distribution and what that equates to that center it doesn't matter where you're at in the range that center of the distribution is going to come out to about 130 inches plus or minus like two or three inches we can take deer from texas and iowa and and uh, south georgia and the carolinas and put them all into a place and they're going to have their birth and if we look at the average under the identical conditions they're all going to come out to averaging at maturity somewhere within just a handful of inches of each other right genetics is not driving that pattern on the landscape it, it is it, it is a result of what we're doing particularly with trigger but also you know uh, the, the habitat part of that is affecting whether or not they express that potential as well. But age is definitely driving it. Right. So, you know, when, when you have a, a three or 4% chance, I, I don't know what the number is, but it's probably less than 10% over most of the landscape of a buck being born and then making it to maturity. You know, it's already extremely rare that that happens and it just, because of the way we do things, it's always an individual on the left side of the distribution. And then we end up with, with that peak where, you know, all of my mature bucks are always in the 120s. And that's the reality is all the ones that had higher potential got killed at two or three years old. So that, that middle of the bell curve, that not the, not the bottom end, not the extreme high end, what can we do? to have bigger bucks in that, in the middle of that range, in the middle of that bell curve. You know, we talked about nutrition. Uh, we talked about what to eat. We talked about reduced stress, but we didn't talk about how we actually get it, how we protect them from heat, yeah. how we get more forbs and more browse on the landscape. Um, how do you do that in the average property across the Southeast and Midwest? What, what's, how do we go about that? Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty broad question. So I'll give you a broad answer. We need to <laughs> turn sunlight into to deer food and cover. And that, you know, we, we started out uh, when we were talking about what they eat, it, they can't eat or hide in anything they can't reach. Right. So thinning, thinning burning. Yeah. You, you have to reduce basal area or reduce canopy cover uh, and allow sunlight to, to get in normally if you're not if you don't have 30 percent sunlight at, at a minimum getting into to the forest understory then it's being limited by light that, that's a minimum so that's not where you target if you're reducing basal area for that purpose you know you want to even go lower than that but if you're if you're not down to that much broken canopy then that that stand the forage available and cover and the understory is being limited by light Okay. And add practices to that, like fire, where they they actually have a non-additive effect. And what I mean is you do one and you let's say uh, we do one and we get two. And we add, we do the other one and we get two. But when you do them both together, you get five. And you don't get four. You get, you know, they actually augment one another. So uh, that, you know, that's that is a really good way 
to maximize uh, maximize what your gains for those practices is to put them together and uh, you know have plenty of sunlight for the plant community to respond to fire. Thomas, I think you had some questions we were discussing pre-show about uh, burning enclosed canopy forest and burn rotations depending on basal area and stuff like that. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you know, one of the um, one of the fascinating things that that correlates to me is a lot of times when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking about doing these practices for quail and turkey. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of people, you know, they hear the the quail, the turkey guys you know, pushing fire, pushing TSI, pushing all these things. And we've got probably have a lot more deer hunters, at least here, mm -hmm. than we do turkey hunters. And, and we sure have more than we do quail hunters. And um, I think sometimes we forget uh, that if, if the, these practices, that they're, helping, they're helping not just quail and turkey, but they're helping your deer a lot too. Yeah. And I, think, I think we overlooked that. I'm a big advocate of fire. I love it, but I want to. I want to ask you a question. What, if any, negative impacts can we get from burning in a closed canopy uh, woodland? What uh, I'm just assuming you're talking about hardwood. Yes. Well, that's a really important question because it's been a barrier for a long time, especially. Uh, when you start moving north and there, there's a perception that you're going to have a really strong negative impact on the timber production or the quality of the, the existing timber. When you're in an upland hardwood stand, uh, you know, this dominated by white oaks or chestnut oak or, you know, some of those really common species across the Mid-South, at least, uh, central hardwoods regions, those are actually fire adapted species. They're not to the same degree as longleaf pine or wiregrass or, you know, some of these species like that, that we think of the quintessential, you know, pyrophytic species, fire loving species, sorry. Um, but they do have a, lot, a suite of characteristics that promotes fire moving through the system. And I think it's important to think about that because we typically think of those upland oak species not being resistant to fire or to, you know, even have characteristics that would promote fire. And uh, I, I put out a video a while back uh, about this because I thought it was really cool and I was talking to the expert on the topic. But, uh, you know, they have a whole suite of characteristics associated with their leaves that, that make the leaf litter more fluffy and, and help fire to progress across the system. And, and uh, we have some silvicultural techniques like uh, the uh, shelter wood with fire technique, which we're actually using fire to promote oak because they're more resistant to their com the, uh, than their competition to fire. So um, all that to say, there's still this strong perception that's definitely a barrier to fire use that you're going to damage all of your hardwoods. So I, I, uh, I did an analysis on this just recently uh, it was in uh, one of the, the last couple issues of Quality Whitetails, where we kind of laid it all out. What are, you know, what is the, what, what are the uh, consequences of burning in your upland hardwoods financially and based on the literature? 
and a whole bunch of studies have been done on that. And then how does that compare to other stuff you do anyway? You know, like on a cost per uh, basis. And uh, it was pretty remarkable to me. One thing is uh, if you put all the studies together, you average about 3% loss in timber value after repeated burning. So 3%. 3%. Yeah. And that, that actually was skewed high because there were a few studies where they were evaluating uh, restoration of woodlands. So they're trying to create this open, uh, open forest, you know, with very few trees and the understory. Yeah. Like a savanna, oak savanna. Uh, they were trying to restore that with fire. So they were literally trying to kill the trees with fire. Yeah, yeah. So those, those couple of studies had really high estimates and they kind of made that look even worse than it, than it was. And even with those studies, it still ain't that bad. Right. So we, we actually uh, said, okay, well, here's the average the return that people would get per acre in an upland oak stand that's doing, you know, that's really doing well, uh, that's mature and ready to harvest. Here's how much they'd make per acre. You know, we kind of did the calculations on that and then equated it to what does it cost you to plant a food plot instead? And then what does it cost you to put it in a feeder instead, you know, with supplemental feeding? And uh, it was pretty remarkable. Even if you burned in that circumstance and try, you know, uh, and, and it was kind of worst case scenario where you're injuring uh, some of the trees and losing it even if you take those losses and then equate that into what you're going to gain from a deer foraging standpoint it's still way more cost effective than planting a food plot or i mean it's like 20 something times more efficient than providing that same amount of protein in a feeder so that's the majority of their diet so it's a win-win yeah and that also doesn't include all of the other stuff that comes with it like really high quality cover that's a thermal refuge or hides fawns, uh, fruit production in the understory, you know, all these other things that you're benefiting from it. But to me, that was really eye-opening and it's sort of giving you some insight into my process as well. People, that that is the very common thing that people come to me with. Hey, I love all this fire stuff you're talking about in this habitat, but I just can't do it because I've got up on hardwoods. And it's like, well, wait a minute, what, you know, what actually are you afraid of? And it's the losses. And then if we actually do the math on it, that's way more efficient than what they're already doing. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, now, yeah, it, it can hurt, uh, injure hardwoods. There's no question about that. And it's easier in some circumstances to do that, but you can take a few precautions. Like if you have some prized oaks, maybe you've got a white oak that just rains it down, go rake around it. Don't allow, you know, big limbs and, and fallen trees and stuff to be adjacent to that bowl that you're trying to protect. Uh, you wouldn't want to target necessarily the stands that you're trying to grow high quality salt timber in. But I'm, I'm willing to bet that most people have some areas where they could enter uh, with fire and, and make a lot of good without much risk of that bad. I had a, I got a real quick question, Tom. I don't mean to interrupt you, but um, so I, I've got a prescription for some thermal thinning to take out some uh, mid-story red oaks uh, on some south and west facing slopes in a white oak uh, woodland. But I hear a lot of people talk about 
you don't want to get a fire hot enough that you sterilize your soil or that you ruin your seed bank. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I've burnt brush piles that burn hot for days at a time and have some lush green stuff come up after we, after we remove the debris, um, root wads and stuff that didn't burn. So is that even an issue when you're doing a prescribed fire? Can, I mean, you're not going to, I guess you could in like a, uh, um, a glade type setting, maybe where the rocks are close and there's not much soil, but, uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. I, I haven't really heard much about that, but I do have some insight about it. Uh, when, when normally when we have a when we have a fire that is reverting everything back to primary succession, which is what you're saying, basically all of the plant material that comes back onto the site has to come from elsewhere. There's nothing in the seed bank. That is usually in the stand replacing wildfires, and it usually isn't even in the south, uh, but it can happen there, and it's usually something that's aiding a you know the fire is is aiding a tremendous amount of the the fuel that's accumulated so that duff and stuff and you know as you see some of the stuff out west where i mean we have feet of duff that gets burned down into like that that can definitely affect the seed bank but uh usually in our systems in this in the southeast in particular that that's not an issue for the majority of them uh, soil is a really good buffer of heat and if you get down to mineral soil and you have a bunch of seeds that are even just a couple you know they may not even be an inch down into the ground and they're still protected from it we also have a whole bunch of seeds that need to scarification and or uh, some of them can even smell smoke apparently there, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on <laughs> where you can blow smoke on them and then they'll germinate <laughs> there's all kinds of weird stuff going on in nature which is one of the reasons i love it so much oh uh, yeah oh yeah i became a scientist but uh that's usually not a problem so if if we go into some of the areas that i work a lot like longleaf pine savanna the majority of the plants are just re-sprouting from fire and uh where we see that primary succession would be where a big tree has fallen down or you know, like you've talked about with the big brush pile or something where you're intensifying heat to a really high level for a long time, then you might have a, an area there that you've sterilized the seed bank in that. But an interesting thing about that is I have a, a PhD in my lab that, that he's about to graduate with research on this topic and where are all the seeds coming from. And uh, it it's a pretty interesting phenomenon that when you burn basically every wildlife species in the, in the place seeks out that area. We've been calling it the magnet effect. So if you've seen that online, that's what we're talking about. Uh, that happens with deer, turkeys, quail, you know, every songbird that, that eats insects or seeds, uh, which pretty much all of them, they are all attracted to it. And what he was doing with his research is saying, okay, well, are they actually bringing seeds to the burned area? And uh, now that he's collected 20,000 plus seeds, we can pretty confidently say that we elevate the number of seeds arriving to an area by about 10 times 
by burning. Oh, wow. So a lot of the seeds that you, a lot of the stuff that you're seeing come up anyway is coming from somewhere else because all the birds are bringing it in there that uh, have another student working on the same kind of idea with deer and deer are bringing all the stuff they like to eat in there too. So very uh, cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not really that concerned about that. The other thing is it's usually a smoldering fire that's burning duff, not a, a surface fire that, that's doing that. Uh, so I, I'm not particularly concerned about that issue. Okay. Good enough. Yeah, you know, uh, um, it's been a couple of years now. Uh, we made a vacation trip to the Smokies. I love going over there. Mm -hmm. It was after the wildfire. And I mean, that, that's obviously not the kind of fire you want. Mm -hmm. But I was surprised at the native response that had already taken place in, in what we consider catastrophic, mm -hmm. you know, um, from, from our, our vantage point. Sometimes we think, you know, oh, this was really, really bad. Yeah. But I saw a lot of good benefit from it. Sure. Uh, and I, I hate to say that because, I, you know, I realize people lost homes and businesses and, and you know, it is tragic in many ways. But as far as the, the natural aspect of it, um, the, the forest was rebounding well. Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly, yeah, I, I'm with you. It doesn't mean every part of it is desirable. Certainly right. wasn't in that case, but, uh, you know, one of the things missing across a lot of our upland hardwoods are, you know, early, earlier succession types, uh, vegetation types. And that's something that you get with a stand replacing fire. It's another good reason why we want to be, using prescribed fire because we're trying to avoid that and the majority of fire right now is being set to reduce fuel loads so that that isn't a threat because we don't want you know we don't want a danger to to life or property so that's one of the values of using prescribed fire and we have data now that is clear as it can be that a lot of these practices will reduce the risk of that absolutely absolutely but just one thing, uh, I have had a couple of listeners, it seems like they're all from the Northeast that have asked me about it, where they've been in these stands like, like that, that have been closed canopy for a hundred years. And then they're worried, well, if I go in and thin and burn, am I going to get the same kind of response? Because there hasn't been any of that stuff here for forever. And uh, I have been First of all, it's remarkable to me. I've been surprised every time that you always have this big response. But another thing is just a fun fact. A lot of the plants that we want to, to colonize these areas, some of them can sit there in the seed bank for hundreds of years. That's so and, cool. And it's a strategy. It makes sense, right? If, if, you go, if you happen to get caught in the seed bank somewhere where there wasn't enough disturbance to keep it, from getting into a closed canopy forest, you're going to have to sit it out for a while before you have another opportunity. So, you know, it makes sense that they'd be able to do that, but we have, uh, we have some really good evidence that that could be, you know, hundreds of years uh, for some species. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I actually, um, on this property that I'm on now, we've done a, a commercial thinning, some pack and squirt and, uh, then this past, and, and a couple fires, uh, dormant season fires. And this past uh, winter, I did a little test on a primary, primarily a, a south-facing uh, slope and, and ridge and uh, was going to create 
you know, some betting tickets and I was just uh, getting rid of some low value stuff, some hickory, some cedar, mm -hmm. and just did a small area, just really as a little bit of an experiment mm -hmm. and, um, and, then and then burned it and um, came back in the spring. Uh, there's some blueberries there. Uh, and then there was this quadrifolia milkweed growing that just, it just, it just came up, you know, I'm like, well, how did that happen? You know, what, what was, was that seed? Was that some root, you know, what, what was going on there? And the cool thing about it, which we, we've talked about this a couple of times was it already had uh, monarch eggs on the underside of the leaves. So we got some photos of that. And then mm -hmm. a couple of weeks later had some uh, caterpillars there and uh, it was a really cool deal. So, you know, that was a real small area that, you know, mm -hmm. might be the size of your living room. If we can stretch that out, it's just mind-boggling the 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 difference that we could make. Yeah. Well, I, I always like to look at nature and try to think about how would all of that have been happening right. before we were doing it. And you know what? What would have happened in that circumstance is you have a beetle spot or lightning strikes and kills a few trees or something, but we'd have these patches opening up in the forest like that all the time. Mm -hmm. So it makes yeah. perfect sense that all these species that need that specific thing would be able to find it really well whenever it happens. And uh, that's been kind of one of, I guess, the sort of a transition in what I've been doing in the lab. We've been trying to figure out how that kind of stuff works because we don't really understand it well. Like, how did they find that? How did they find those plants? How the plants find that area? Or were they already there? Are they just going to wait it out for a hundred years, or did they actually find it once it was open? Either one is remarkable. And then on top of that, you have other species that are responding to the fact that the plant is now there. How did they get there? They certainly, I don't think, were sitting in the soil, but maybe they were. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that that's what blew my <laughs> mind is how did that butterfly fly through all of this forest and find this little bitty plant? I, it, that, yeah. that's insane to me well it, something that's just an interesting anecdote uh we've we've got some research working on it but you could go in to a place like that and kill a few trees and and we've done this and had seed traps there where we're just catching all the seeds that come and uh you could put that seed trap out there and you know you you get maybe 10 or 12 a month seeds that you're catching in it and then you put that opening in and it is instantaneously that might go to a hundred or 200 per month. Wow. Go like yep. tenfold. And it's like all those seeds that figure out a way to take advantage of that. Some of them are animal dispersed and some of them are wind dispersed. And they both like figured out how to like, as soon as that gap is available, they're there. So and we got to cut the tree. We cut the tree. <laughs> we light the fire and the good Lord does the rest. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to figure it out. That's so. awesome. So it, is. it really is. It never seems to amaze me how crazy nature is and all these things going on all the time. And a lot of them, we don't, we're just kind of scratching the surface on understanding. Even. I'm going to throw you another question that is multifaceted. So you're going to hate that because you're going to go, what, what in the world was the other part of that I'm question? Used to it, don't. Yeah. <laughs> Normally but, but, it's like a DM or something. Yeah. Know, this all lies, And then I'm going to try to solve somebody's problems with it. <laughs> That's right. This, this all kind of goes hand in hand when talking about fire. Um, you know, a, a lot of times, uh, especially our forest service guys catch a lot of grief over the size 
you know, the amount of, uh, of burn unit size and timing. Um, and, and, you know, the public is pretty aware, I think, of the negative side of that. But, you know, there's also in that podcast you just finished up, uh, you also talked a lot about the good outweighs the bad. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, the public, like me, uh, now and now that I'm actually managing land, uh, it's a little bit different because Hunter and I have talked about this before. Like, look, dude, we're burning it this year come heck or high water because it's zero value right now. Right. It's not it's not yielding us anything. So sometimes the good does outweigh the bad. Then the other thing I wanted you to maybe hit on was, uh, you know, a burn rotation. And how do you assess that? You know, it may vary from property to property. Um, uh, yeah. And then also – you know, the, those, those burn blocks, uh, I, I, I kind of, and I know since you're a cattle guy, you may be, you may be thinking along these lines too, but I kind of also think about this a little bit like patch burn grazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say you had a 40 acre track and you may chunk that up into two or three where you're doing a dormant season, a growing season, maybe different times of the month. So you're staggering things out there. And, and then the last thing was, uh, again, we, a lot of times I think about this with quail and turkey. We talk about nesting habitat, brood rearing habitat, and mm-hmm. the proximity of the two. And mm-hmm. the further distance they are, you know, we have a higher mortality. But mm-hmm. you threw me a curveball in that last podcast when you you basically, I mean, you didn't say this verbatim, but what I understood was that also is is applicable. Maybe not the numbers may not be the same, and there's some variance but it's very applicable to deer mm-hmm. when you're talking about, especially fawning cover um, and the proximity uh, of those, those, you know, staggered burn units possibly. Mm-hmm. So you want to just try and tackle some of that right quick? Yeah. Can you remind me what your first question was? Yeah. There we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's talk about burn unit size and, yeah. and then rotation of those. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of the burn unit size, I, I think there there's a lot of interesting things to think about with that. We'll just put it that way. Uh, what you're seeing on a lot of public land with these really large burn block sizes, sometimes thousands of acres, that for most reasons is not ideal. And you have to understand what the folks are trying to deal with. Like they they have mandates or or whatever that they're trying to deal with, and they they don't have a choice but to try to go larger to increase efficiency. And I don't think people realize that. But when I was talking about it, the benefits outweighing the negative in a lot of our systems. Without the fire, the system turns into something that's not usable. So you would much rather have large burn blocks that maintain a system that's usable and maybe there's some negative things associated with it being large than to not have fire at all and it turn into something that's not usable. Yep. I mean, you're, you're, you know, with quail, they're the best example because they're so sensitive to it. You know, if we had to choose, let's say uh, we just pick a random pine plantation somewhere and you want to have quail on it, well, your choices are 
let's say we're, our choice is to burn all of it or burn none of it. Well, you're really choosing, do you want quail or not? Right. Is it ideal to burn the whole property, the whole thousand acres at once? Absolutely not. But if you don't burn it, you're not going to have quail. Right. Yep. So Great point. That, that's, that is part of, you know, what I was talking about is the fire, especially for quail, but uh, even for turkeys, it's pretty important to have the communities available that they need. And it is way better to burn a little bit too large of a block or burn at the wrong time than to not burn. Mm -hmm. so, Perfect. So what about the correlation, you know, that, that we have heard a lot and drill this home between nesting habitat, brood rearing habitat, the distance between the two with, you know, correlates to mortality. How does that apply? What's the similarity with deer? Yeah, it, it's really just a little bit larger of a scale just because the, the doe and the fawn, especially early in life, are a little more mobile. But, uh, you know, let, well, we'll talk about the, the soybean patch. You don't want her bedding her fawn in the soybean patch while she's trying to feed it, right? You'd rather her be in a, in a community structure that, that provides safety at a higher level, first of all, from predators, but also a better thermal environment for it to hide in and all that. Uh, so, you know, th those things need to be relatively close together because she can't go that far away and consume enough forage to then get back to it and feed it in time. Right, right. In fact, what you're trying to do is reduce the stress on her to accomplish both things at the same time. And she may not be doing them both in the same place. Some of these habitat management practices like thinning and burning in particular, they, she actually, you may be creating a situation where she can do them both at the same time. And there's a lot of value in that. So they may be doing it in the same spot. But if you, what, what you were saying with the patch burn grazing analogy a few minutes ago, if you had a, an area that's been burned, maybe, uh, well, in the South, you could, it could be earlier in the year, like March, and that may already be pretty decent fawning cover. And then you have another spot that's been burned in late May or early June, and then that's an exceptional foraging spot because of the, the uh, resource pulse associated with that. And then if you have those two things together, then she can forage really efficiently in close proximity to the fawn. And, you know, that there's a lot of value in, in having that. It's just like, you know, we don't, I mean, we used to do this, but we don't, most people don't anymore, I should say. We have our bathroom in their house, right? Rather than having to walk across the yard, you know, uh, right. one of the best ways to, re and this is actually scientific fact, one of the best ways to reduce how much candy you consume is to make yourself get up out of your seat to go get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those, that I've been looking, you know, that I've been reading literature on that. How do I get, get my candy consumption in? Uh, but you know, that's the same kind of principle. You, you, the closer things are together, the more convenient it is to integrate them. And, you know, that's really, that, that applies to all these species, especially when they need different things for, you know, to accomplish different parts of their biology. So the, you know, what the, the doe needs and what the fawn needs 
don't perfectly align. So you want to put those two things in close proximity, particularly when they are limited by time and, and uh, how much ground they can cover. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, that that's, brings me to my last question. Uh, you know, we, we hear a lot, which you've mentioned, you know, a lot of people are, are planting switchgrass, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for fawning or bedding cover. And then, of course, you've got a few guys out there that are probably taking that to an extreme where they have a monoculture mm -hmm. uh, of switch. Um, one of the best looking food plots that I've ever seen in my life was totally wrapped with early secessional habitat. And um, it just, it was, it was incredible. I'm not talking about what was growing in the plot. I'm talking about what surrounded the plot, Yeah. Um, which I think was, was overlooked. So, you know, that some people's theory, I think is that, well, if my deer are bedding there in this monoculture of switchgrass, they're going to have to come out into my food plot where I can get an opportunity to shoot them. So can, you know, and I'm like, Hey man, they're browse creatures. They're going to move just, just be patient. So can you kind of hit the, you know, what your opinion is on, on some of that, as far as monoculture, especially with switch as, as, as cover? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, that, sorry about that. Uh, I think the, the main thing is a monoculture does not provide much opportunity for choices. Now, uh, will they bed in it? Absolutely. And uh, if it's the only cover on the landscape, they may not have a choice but to bed there. But we're, you know, if you're really trying to to take a more holistic approach to reducing stress and and improving the productivity of the herd and everything, you really need to be thinking about diversity. And uh, one of the things, you know, we've sat here and talked about how complex all these different things are. One way for us to deal with that is to provide lots of options and just let them do what they need to do. And, uh, you know, the, the switchgrass next to the food pot, they'll actually, they'll absolutely use that to bed in. There's no question. I'm not arguing that that's untrue. Uh, but, you know, a native plant community that's providing high quality bedding and also maybe a, a few really good plants that they need in their diet that's right there, that, that'll have a more attractive, you know, uh, outcome to the animal. Like if you're providing them more of the things that they need right there together, maybe they don't have to step in the food plot as early or as much, but you may be giving them more reason to anchor there, which is what most people's goal is. They don't want them to get off their property or whatever. They're trying to hold the deer right there in other words and uh the diversity is definitely a better way to do that well we could go on all afternoon about this um you have been a phenomenal it's been an honor to have you here uh we appreciate every single thing that you do um we won't keep you all afternoon we could we could have made this a two or three part i think we could keep talking this all that rest of the day but uh uh we do want to encourage everybody if that survey is still going on we do want to encourage everybody to get out there and mm -hmm. fill out that survey um that goes to your administration um yeah and, uh, I appreciate that we we definitely want to keep you around and uh we hope to do this again one of these days this is uh this has been a lot of fun and very enlightening um yeah. 
you know, we sit and listen to these podcasts all the time, and we're like, uh, boy, I'd like to ask this question, or I'd like to ask that yeah. question, and what we finally get to. So this, yeah. this has been great. But Well, I, I really appreciate that, and uh, I'm happy to, to come back whenever you'll have me uh, and happy to answer any questions if anybody has them. I, normally, I'll just follow up and send me a message or something, and I try to keep up with that as much as I can, but uh, I'm also trying to gather more information. So sometimes I'm not, uh, I'm not as uh, quick on the turnaround as I can be, but uh, yeah. And, you know, all of this great feedback from everybody, we're, we're actively trying to expand uh, to new podcasts and, and uh, all these different efforts because of folks like yourselves that have, that have taken the time to give us feedback and help us justify it. So we're excited about uh, a lot of things that are coming to the, natural resource university network of podcasts so uh, a lot of good stuff coming well we hope to expand on that we hope uh we want to encourage everybody y'all get out there and fill out that survey if you haven't done it yet and uh we want to hear more great content from uh, uh dr lashley and uh i think we've we've took up enough of your time i know you've got shrubs to trim and and trees <laughs> to trim and Strangers <laughs> to get out there in this heat this afternoon. So, oh yeah, well, I yeah, I still have a few hours before I'm gonna crank the chainsaw. But there you go, two or three at a time. Yep, uh, yep. My advisor used to Craig Harper uh, used to tell me that uh, you don't eat an elephant all at once; you eat it one <laughs> bite at a time. One bite at a time. That's right. Good way to think about it. Well, you'll get through them one of these days. <laughs> well, y'all, we've enjoyed y'all having. We've enjoyed y'all tuning into us this week, and uh, we'll see y'all next week on Sawdust and Fire. And until then, uh, fill those drip torches up. See y'all next week. Mm-hmm.